Well, my name is Darren. Uh, I think I know most of you, but it's nice to see you all. Welcome to Beyond, where we are uh, in the process of finishing up uh, the book of Daniel. We began that series in our main services in the narrative portions, and now we're sort of walking through the apocalyptic sections at the end. And specifically today, if you have one of those Daniel journals, um, we'll be in uh, some of seven and some of eight. If you were with us last week, you know that we jumped into seven, specifically looking at the teachings on the Ancient of Days and on the Son of Man. But in order to focus in there and really kind of set the tone for what the apocalyptic sessions are pointing us towards, uh, we, we, we decided to break seven up into a couple of pieces, and it, it fits nicely with eight, which you'll see as we go. But before we dive in, uh, why don't we, uh, let's, I just want to read seven in its entirety so you kind of get the whole flow of it, and then, and then we'll dive in together. So it says this, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire." A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. About the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, 
This horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand, for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom of the dominion, the kingdom and the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Will you pray with me as we begin? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you are a God who uh, reveals to us the truth, uh, even sometimes in these pictures that are dramatic and terrifying, we thank you that even one as wise and great as Daniel was perplexed and anxious in some ways because of what he had seen, and that even in the interpretation, he wrestles with what to do with that. God, we here today gather uh, to wrestle with what we see in your word and to understand what it is that you're seeking to communicate to us, the pictures that you're trying to paint, and to understand the difference that that understanding then makes in the way we live today and serve you with the life and breath you've given us. We praise you for your word and the power it has to transform our lives and to glorify you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's important, and I think Zach did a great job last week. By the way, you're going to be very disappointed. I thought Zach's slides last week were very helpful. I told him so afterwards. I was like, man, such great PowerPoint presentations and all kinds of great things to look at. I'm not really a great PowerPoint guy, so I'm going to work my way through the text, but I'm not going to have the same kind of visual notes, and for that, I apologize. It's just kind of the way I roll. But Zach did such a great job for sort of setting the stage for us last week and giving us a sense of the way apocalyptic literature works, what it is that God's trying to do, what happens in the life of Daniel, and uh, and then I think setting the stage for us in what it is that God was trying to, sort of in an overarching way, trying to point people towards as we understand the coming of the Son of Man, as we understand the power of the Ancient of Days as relayed here in 7. But it's contrasted with the vision that Daniel has of these four beasts. And uh, remember that anytime we're looking at apocalyptic literature, it's given for the sake of encouraging and enlightening those who feel despised or discouraged or who've been cast off. Daniel certainly was in that place. And the people of God continue, we know, to be in a place where they'll always be sort of a minority position. And so there's meant by God to be an encouragement to us. And, and as we labor into understanding what's said here in 7 and what's said in 8 today... It's important for you to remember that the goal of all this is not necessarily to be able to splice all of the individual details. God's giving a picture to Daniel, and he's giving a picture to us that's meant to be observed in its wholeness. It's not necessarily meant to be sliced and diced into specific little details. We're meant to get big picture. In fact, even as you hear Daniel sort of talk about what he's seeing, you're hearing Daniel say, I saw this and I was overwhelmed. In Daniel, I think it's actually really encouraging. In Daniel chapter 8, um, at the end of Daniel chapter 8, after the dream in 8 is interpreted to him by, by a, a watcher, Daniel says in verse 27, I, Daniel, this is after he gets the interpretation, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. 
Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And that's after he was revealed the, the interpretation. So if you and I are looking at some of this stuff and we're scratching our head at moments and we're, and we're going, man, I hear what God says this is about. I understand what God's trying to convey, but I still feel a little bit overwhelmed. Or maybe you feel like you want to get in bed and cover up your head for a few days and feel sick like Daniel did. Know that you're in good company, right? If that's Daniel's approach to some of this, we shouldn't expect it to be much different for us. But there is vivid imagery here meant to be seen and felt. Meant to be seen and felt. That's my encouragement to you as we read this. You want to feel it. It's almost like watching an action movie. You don't just want to, you don't just want to read it and go, who's this and what's that and what time is this going to take place and what does this relate to? But you want to, you want it to be kind of visceral. That's the way apocalyptic literature works. You want it to kind of shake you. It's almost the kind of thing you want to take in surround sound. Does that make sense? You want it to sort of vibrate you at the bone level, right? So we look here, and he has this vision. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. He wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now there's some redundancy in here, but for the sake of it, he sees these four beasts, and the four beasts come up out of the sea. Now that's important for us, because in in the Old Testament, the sea or the ocean was always representative of chaos. It's always representative of disorder. Uh, As we looked last week at the orderliness and the power and the beauty uh, of the ancient of days and of the Son of Man, you want to see the contrast here, right? There's order and then there's disorder and chaos. These beasts come out of the water. They come out of the water, which is representative of, uh, it's a type of chaos and disorder. And there are four beasts, right? So we'll just look at them in turn. Daniel declared, verse 2, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Now, you should know, anytime we're getting into apocalyptic literature, there are lots of different interpretations. So there are different people who are going to go, here's what that represents, and there's going to be a great scholar on the other side who loves Jesus equally, who's going to go, well, actually, here's what this represents. Here's, here's our best guess. I'm, what I'll be giving you today is my best understanding of the text, but know that I'm always holding that loosely. Anytime we're not talking about essential doctrine, we always want to say, I'm holding it loosely, right? Now, when we're talking about the Trinity or we're talking about the deity of Christ, we're talking about the resurrection, we don't have any wiggle room on those things. But here, what I'm going to teach you today is our best understanding, my best understanding, and you know that some of that I'm happy to be wrong about. So when we arrive at heaven together, if God goes, hey, you said that that first beast was Babylon and it was actually this or that, I'll be like, yeah, I'm a knucklehead, I got it wrong, right? But when we look at this imagery here, the first that comes out in verse 4 was like a lion and had eagle's wings. The lion was typically representative of Babylon. So this is is a picture that makes sense to most theologians when they look at it, that this first beast is the kingdom of Babylon. It says uh, it it looked like a lion but had eagle's wings. And then as as he looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. Now if you remember... Uh, if you remember our study of the beginning portions of Daniel, there is that section in the book of Daniel where the king, who is trying to present himself as a godlike figure, is actually humbled. Remember that? And instead of singing godlike, he becomes very beast-like, right? Nebuchadnezzar was beastly, yet human, appearing like a kingdom of the gods, and yet he, he was taught that he was as frail as any man. 
So when we see this image of a lion that looks like it's got wings and it's powerful, but then its wings are taken off and it's forced to stand up on two feet, that is in essence a picture of the, of the kingdom of Babylon being reminded that they weren't quite as godlike as they wanted everybody to understand. That's the first beast, right? The second beast, as we watch, the first beast we see as, as comparable to Babylon. And what we're going to see here is, the, is this re- sort of turnover. It says then in, uh, in verse 5, Behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And we'll see when we get to eight in a second that there's another picture of this particular kingdom. But we believe that this second beast is representative of the Medes and the Persians or the Medo-Persian Empire, which Daniel also served in the midst of. When it says there's a bear that has ribs in its mouth, the picture is one of avarice or rapaciousness. The picture is of a hunger and a desire to devour. But when it says that it's higher on one side than on the other, it's meant to show the the fact that even though the Medo-Persian Empire was united... Ultimately, over time, the Persians uh, w- would certainly become the more dominant side of that partnership, right? And we'll see that in eight also. There, there will be an, an animal there, which we'll get to in a minute, that has one horn that's slightly larger than the other, also representative of Medo-Persia. And the picture is uh, of that sort of um, lopsidedness, but listen to what it says here in five. Behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth, and it was told, arise devour much flesh. It's lopsided, hungry, greedy, avaricious. The third beast we see here, number six, in verse six, says this, after this I looked, and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. We believe this third beast is in reference to the Greeks, who uh, looked in every direction and conquered in every direction and went very swiftly. So the picture of the animal here is not of a bear that's hungry and devouring, but rather of a leopard, which is swift, that looks in four different directions and, and has incredible speed. So this leopard is swift, looking in every direction and, and conquering like no kingdom before it. So we see the kingdoms here of Babylon that is ultimately dominated by the Medo-Persians and the Medo-Persians who are ultimately dominated by the Greeks. But then as we get to the fourth beast, and this is where we'll spend a little more time, as we get to the fourth beast, uh, look at what it says in 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were the eyes, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As we look at this, this vision, what I want you to see here is that it talks about this fourth kingdom being different somehow, right? We see that uh, mentioned there in verse, um, we see that difference mentioned in verse 7. If we skim down to verse 19, the, the fact that this kingdom is different is mentioned again. Daniel says in 19, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze. We go all the way down to 23 in the interpretation. He said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. So we want to put that fourth beast in a different category in our minds as we're trying to understand what God is saying here, right? 
We've got the, we've got the Babylonians who were powerful, but were ultimately dominated by the Medo-Persians. We've got the Medo-Persians who were avaricious and hungry, who had a crazy appetite, and they were ultimately dominated by the Greeks who went in all different directions as swiftly as they could and dominated the kingdoms of the earth. But then there's this fourth kingdom that is different and it's characterized by terror, by havoc, by strength. We also see inside this fourth kingdom some internal conflict. It's got ten horns, but it says at one point there's this one little horn that comes up and it uproots three of the other horns. So you want to get the picture. Again, you're trying to feel this thing, right? You're not necessarily trying to slice and dice it. But you're trying to feel this fourth beast, which is different from all the others. There's this havoc and terror. It says Daniel was terrified by this. By, it's not identified with any sort of an animal. So we never get to, he never says, oh, and this fourth beast was an octopus, or the fourth beast was a, a tiger. Or what, there's, there's no, it's, it's something other. It's something completely different. So sometimes theologians will look at this and they'll say, well, this could be Rome, because the Romans came in and they conquered the Greeks, and so this might be Rome. I actually think he's not talking about Rome here, that's my opinion, because of the difference. Because we're not just given another human kingdom that's like the other three. The fact that it's a different kingdom is important here. But it's a kingdom that's characterized by internal chaos. Um, there's this little horn that rises up. And if we jump back into Daniel chapter 7 and we look at what it says about the little horn in verse 8. It says, Behold, in, his, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. There's this little horn. Later on in the interpretation, we'll find out that these horns represent kings. Kings inside this different kingdom. But this little horn comes to sort of rule them all. And the idea of this little horn is that there's an intelligence and an arrogance. When it talks about his eyes, this horn has eyes, that's denoting his, his intelligence. He's, he's got some ability to understand things. And when it talks about his mouth boasting of great things, it's talking about his pride. He's both intelligent and arrogant. As we look at this dream, I want you to step back for just a second and feel it and look at it, right? What God is conveying here, especially when we take into account... The, the things we learned last week about the Son of Man and about the Ancient of Days. Ultimately, this fourth beast that's different and terrifying and, and, and absolutely conquering, this fourth beast is crushed in the vice. You see it here in Daniel chapter 7? Between the Ancient of Days and between the Son of Man, this fourth kingdom is dispatched. This fourth monster, this, this beast, is utterly rendered powerless. So if you looked at, at the part we looked at last week, it says in 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, right? The Ancient of Days took his seat. You jump down to verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Here's this horn, and he's talking in all of this intelligence and all this boasting. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the ancient days and was presented before him, and all kingdom and dominion was given to the Son of Man. We saw that last week. So I want you to see that, yes, there is this terrifying dream of these different earthly kingdoms. They're powerful. They're hungry. They run swiftly in all four directions. But ultimately, what God is saying here is that each of these kingdoms will fall. That these are kingdoms that are characterized by conflict. There's a pattern of history. And it's not even just related to these four specific kingdoms. There is a pattern in human history that you can see in every history book from the beginning of time. And that is that human kingdoms are characterized by conflict, conquest, control. 
They like to dominate. They like to devour. They like to lay waste to everything that came before them. They come up with some new idea. They shut down the thing that came before them. And they put their, their power into place. And they think, just like Nebuchadnezzar did, that their kingdom is the one that will last forever. That their system is the best. That their power will not be dominated. But it's only a matter of time before the bear comes and destroys the lion. And then the leopard comes and destroys the bear. And then the fourth beast comes and destroys the... None of this is eternal. And yet when it talks about the kingdom of the Son of Man, when it talks about the kingdom and dominion of the Son of Man, that is a kingdom that lasts forever and ever. So what's God trying to do? He's trying to help you feel. He's trying to help me feel the instability of human kingdoms, the temporalness of human kingdoms, the total depravity of human politics and human war machines and human machination. That at the core of all of them, there is a human pride and a human greed and a human hunger that won't stand. Some other power will rise up. Some other philosophy, some other way of thinking will rise up and topple the current power. And then that thing will be forgotten in the past. Even though at the time that thing seemed so powerful. And even though it seemed so godlike. And even though it seemed like such a dominant system... Human kingdoms are by their very nature built to fail because they're built with fallible people. That's part of the picture God's trying to paint for us here. In fact, we see that even more clearly, or if you will, I would say that, I would say that Daniel chapter 7 is like a big panoramic picture, right? It's like a big overview of human history, right? Because I think what we're seeing in the fourth kingdom, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I think this fourth kingdom that is different than all the other kingdoms is not Rome, In fact, I think we see Rome talked about similarly in Daniel chapter 2. We'll look at that in a minute. I think here he's talking about the final human kingdom on earth, right? The kingdom of the Antichrist. But what we're seeing here is is this huge panoramic picture of human history. And then in Daniel chapter 8, there's almost like a zoom in. It's a tiny little window, right? A window of time where we have the opportunity to zoom in a little bit and watch what happens in more detail, the transition from the bear to the leopard. Okay, so just to frame this in your head, we've already said the bear, right? The bear is the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember, it's lopsided on one end. And then the leopard comes, looks in four directions. That leopard is Greece. Daniel chapter 8 is like a zoom in to look at the transition of power between the Medo-Persians and the Greeks. So let's jump to 8. We'll come back to 7. Jump with me to 8. And again, I'm going to read this whole chapter just for the sake of our digesting it together, okay? Remember, Daniel chapter 8 is a, is a small, it's like a zoom in. It's like a zoomed in shot of a part of what is revealed here in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 8, it says this. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, so get this, this is two years after that last dream, right? In Daniel's span of time, this is two years after that last dream. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. And I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Okay, If you're taking notes or you're making mental tracking here, we're talking about the Medo-Persians again. That higher horn is representative of the, of the Persians that are the dominant culture in, in that particular union, right? So he says, I saw, this, um, I saw this ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. 
I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. The Medo-Persians felt like they were at the top. They felt like nobody could stop them. They felt like they were indomitable, right? And if you were to be a part of that kingdom, you would look and go, we thought the Babylonians were awesome. Look at what the Medo-Persians can do, right? They seem indestructible. Verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. Remember this, this animal that had so much power that no one could stand against is now destroyed when this next kingdom comes. This next animal rises up. Verse 7. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the, goat, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as, a great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering. The transgression that makes desolate. And the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me for 2300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near, near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So in case you're wondering about my interpretation, there you go. The angel confirms. At least this I don't have wrong. He says, uh, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. If you're taking notes, the, Greek that over, the Greeks that overtook the Medes and the Persians, that great horn is representative of somebody you've heard of before. His name is Alexander the Great. By the way, this whole dream in Daniel chapter 8 is in the past for us. It was in the future for Daniel. He heard it and he didn't understand it. He couldn't figure it out, right? He was still in the, in the, in the time frame of Belshazzar and so he's hearing all of this stuff and, and it, it bewilders him to the point where he lays sick in bed because he can't figure it out. But for us, 
This is, we're looking backwards here. The time of Alexander and the Great, Alexander the Great, the time of these four kings that will rise up, this is all ancient history, literally to us, that was prophesied before it occurred. Right? We'll, we'll come back to that. So anyway, here it is. The goat, verse 21, is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place, of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Part of the reason why Daniel is appalled is that in exile, right? He's now serving in the kingdom of Belshazzar. He's still an exile from Judah. Everything in him is longing to return to regular worship. It's all longing to return to see the temple rebuilt, right? And he knows the prophecies. He likely knows the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah who've said that it's only going to be a season of time before they'll leave their exile and go back to their homeland. So put yourself in Daniel's place. You're longing. You're, you're an old man at this point. In the reign of Belshazzar, Daniel's an old man. And he's watching the clock and he's thinking, you know what, if Isaiah and Jeremiah are right, and I know they are, it's not that much longer until our people get to go back and once again offer sacrifices in the temple. But then the vision he's given and the interpretation of it is this. When the Greeks overtake the Medes and the Persians and, and utterly destroy them, Alexander the Great is that mighty horn, but then he, he will be, he'll lose his power shortly after. And that kingdom is divided among four different kings. It talks about that here. Those four kings, if you feel like looking it up in the history books, uh, the division of Greece then was led by some of Alexander's generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucius, and Ptolemy, right? And then there's this little horn that, that rears up its head. Now, here's, here's where it gets a little bit tricky when it comes to apocalyptic literature. You go, oh, little horn. We read about that already. We read about the little horn in seven. Here he pops up again. This is a little confusing. It's not the same little horn, right? It's a different little horn. So the little horn we see in eight is a different character in a different time frame than the little horn we see in seven. The, the, the little horn that we see here in chapter 8 is actually referring to a man named Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes, by the way, means manifest God. Antiochus, under Greek rule, between 175 and 164 BC, took Jerusalem through deceit. This is after they had returned from their exile. He became friends with the Jewish people and then he subverted them and overthrew the city. He took Jerusalem through deceit he burned the Torah openly. He burned their scrolls. He desecrated the temple with foreign gods, including a statue of Jupiter in the temple. And he sacrificed swine in that place. So when we read in Daniel chapter 8 of this desolation, when we hear the angels themselves going, how long is this going to happen before this time of transgression and desolation is over? You can feel the frustration and you can understand why Daniel was sick to his stomach. Because what God is essentially saying to him is that even after your people return to their homeland and reset up their regular worship, it's still not going to be sunshine and rainbows. 
There still will be a season of desecration. There still will be the toppling of human kingdoms. There still will be evil upon the earth. The kingdoms of men in their avarice and their greed and their pride will try and thwart the work of God. So Daniel is troubled because, you know, if you're thinking about returning home, you're thinking of that as just being the end of the story. We go back home and everything's good. And now he's been given a glimpse of the fact that in the future, even after they've returned, things will be bad again in a different way, right? This is speaking of Antiochus IV, like I said. Daniel was looking forward to the return to the temple and now he knows that even that victory will be short-lived and marred with violence and apostasy. That's what we see here in Daniel chapter 8. The Greeks will overthrow the Medes and the Persians, right? But there's a time frame. There's a time limit. What's God trying to do here? We, We said at the very beginning and we talked last week about the fact that apocalyptic literature is given to us to encourage and enlighten us. So how are we encouraged and enlightened? How is Daniel encouraged? Well, for us, it's a little bit different. For Daniel, knowing the future is somewhat helpful. Knowing what's coming allows you to prepare your heart. It allows you to prepare your descendants. It allows you to say in advance, I know what God has promised and I know what He has foretold. And you can prepare your life in advance for what's coming. But for us, I would say, for us sitting here in in the room, there's something really great about this prophecy to Daniel in chapter 8. It's incredibly encouraging. And what's encouraging is that if you take the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8, which happened in the third year of Belshazzar, and you compare it with our history books, God said it and it happened. Well, that's a great encouragement for us, right? You look at all these things and you go, yeah, yeah, one, two, three, four. Everything God said came to pass exactly as, as he said. And so then there is great confidence for us in knowing that the things God has promised about our future, the things we see in Daniel chapter 7, about the last human power and the reign of the Antichrist, that little horn in Daniel chapter 7, that when it says there in in the section between the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man that He will be utterly destroyed and that His kingdom will end and that the Son of Man will have dominion and His people will rule alongside Him, we take hope from what we see in 7 because when we look at 8 we know that what God says will come to pass does that make sense? for Daniel there is this sense of dismay because what he was hoping for the future isn't exactly what he sees let's go back to Daniel chapter 7 we pick it up here in verse 9 and we see this little horn with his intelligence and his boasting crushed in the vice between the son of man and the ancient of days this fourth beast by the way, different than all the other beasts, is, I believe, the final earthly kingdom. The reason I think this, there are some people, like I've said already, who say uh, that, that, uh, that this is Rome. I actually do think we see uh, Rome revealed in the vision that we see in Daniel chapter 2. So if you go back to Daniel chapter 2, and you'll remember this is the very first vision that Nebuchadnezzar has. In Daniel chapter 2, and this is the, the vision that he has about the giant statue. Remember that one from when we were studying a few, a few weeks ago? Or maybe it's been a month ago now. In Daniel chapter 2, he has this dream. And when you, get to, um, when you get to the interpretation of the dream, let's look at verse 36 and on in Daniel 2. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory... And into whose hand he is given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Verse 39 of Daniel 2. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. 
And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. As you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will, they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44, this is the one I really want you to see. This is Daniel 2.44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Okay? So what we see in Daniel chapter 2 is Daniel saying, during, during the time of Rome, God will establish his kingdom on earth. How does that happen? Well, it happens in the incarnation. It happens in the resurrection of Christ. The kingdom of God is established. That's why even if you were with us this morning for our services, we mentioned that that in Matthew chapter 4, it tells us that the whole message of Jesus was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He began to preach a message of the kingdom of God. That was foretold all the way back in Daniel chapter 2 when he says during this kingdom of iron and clay that's fragmented and whatever, God will establish a kingdom that will never be thwarted. That's the kingdom of God on earth, right? The kingdom of God among us in Daniel chapter 2. When we come then to Daniel chapter 7 and we see this fourth kingdom, here we're seeing the the establishment, the fulfillment of the kingdom. If if Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 during the time of the Romans is the beginning of the kingdom of God, what we're seeing in Daniel chapter 7 with the destruction of the little horn, right, is the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. That's the last human power, the, the last earthly power that will be destroyed before the kingdom of God is fully realized on earth in Daniel chapter 7. So it says here, um, it talks about this fourth beast and it talks about this little horn. I believe that this little horn is the same man of lawlessness, right? The Antichrist that we studied when we were in 2 Thessalonians. We were in 2 Thessalonians in, feels like 200 years ago, but I think it was just February or something, right? February or March. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There is that intelligence and that boasting we see in Daniel chapter 7 of the little horn. It says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know that what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in this time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Right? So remember, even when we were studying Second Thessalonians, it's like there's all this hullabaloo about the man of lawlessness and that he will sit, seat himself on God's throne and he will try and usurp the role of God. And yet Jesus comes and what? Breathes on him and he's destroyed. There's no reason for us to fear. That's part of what's trying to be revealed in Daniel chapter 7 also. There is no reason for us to be shaking in our shoes or covered up our heads with our covers in bed at night, worried about these visions. What's being revealed to us 
is that the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man have all the power. I believe that this in Daniel chapter 7, this little horn, is this very same man of lawlessness. It's who John refers in, in 1 John chapter 2. He refers to him as the Antichrist. Daniel 2.44 sees the beginning of the kingdom of God on earth. Christ during the time of Roman rule. Daniel 7 shows the final triumphant victory of the kingdom of God over every earthly power. That's what we're seeing in Daniel 7. The last kingdom of man. Right? The last kingdom of man. Verse 25, though, look at this. As we go back to Daniel chapter 7, look at what it says here uh, toward the end of this section. Actually, look at verse 23. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So while on one hand in Daniel chapter 7 he's saying to us, there is a final earthly power that will be under the control of this little horn of this man of lawlessness, but will ultimately be destroyed. He will not be victorious. The Son of Man is victorious. There is still knowledge for us. In the same way that in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel was given knowledge to say, the temple will be desecrated. The people of God will be given over to Antiochus Epiphanes. In the same way, there is knowledge for us in this of some terrible things that are still to come. That there is a season when this little horn will speak words against the Most High. Verse 25, and wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times in the law. Most people think that's referring to, um, maybe it's referring to the Hebrew calendar and their, and their, uh, their festivals and celebrations. And they shall be given into his hand for a time. God's people and the laws are given over for a little time, but ultimately... We will receive the kingdom alongside our king. Look at what it says in 26 and 27. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. I want you to hear the finality of that. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Right? That's it. That's the end of the story. We see the end of the story here. Are there earthly kingdoms? Are there different factions? Will every earthly kingdom prior to this one be toppled by some other earthly kingdom? It absolutely will. And ultimately, will this earthly kingdom be dominated and destroyed by the breath of the Lord Jesus Christ? It absolutely will. Will there be difficulty between now and then? For sure. For sure. So what do we take comfort in this? Here's the point. God is hoping to comfort us in the midst of trial, uncertainty, limited knowledge, and limited power. You've probably, if you've been around for a little while, you've heard me say this before, but I feel like all human conflict and frustration and discouragement and anxiety, um, other, I get that there are chemical ways in which that happens, but for most people, most of our frustration comes from the fact that we are limited in our knowledge and we're limited in our power. That we're, we, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen next month. We don't know what's going to happen around the corner. We, we literally can't tell what's going to happen before the end of the day today. We're limited in our knowledge. And not only are we limited in our knowledge, in the places where we gain some knowledge, where we have some expertise, where we, where we become educated, we have limited power to affect what we know. 
So we might learn that we have cancer, but we can't take the cancer away. So it's that combination of limited knowledge and limited power that leaves us frustrated and angry and fighting with each other all the time, right? But when we recognize that he has all the knowledge, and when we recognize that not only does he have all the knowledge, but he has all the power to influence in accordance with what he knows, and then we realize that he's good, look at what that equation equals for his people. God has all the knowledge and he has all the power and he's good. If those things are true, then what do we have to worry about? Where's the fear? He has all the knowledge. It doesn't matter if I know everything or not. It doesn't matter if I know what's going to happen this afternoon. He knows. And it doesn't matter if I'm incapable or powerless to affect change in my world the way I'd like to. He has all the power. And he's good. Not only that, I mean, if you look at the Great Commission, Jesus says, not only, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But at the end of the Great Commission, he says, I'm with you always. So put that equation together, it gets even better. All the power, all the knowledge, good, and with us always. Why would we be afraid? Why would we quake in our boots? Even though we know there are seasons of time where evil men will have control where, where the body of Christ will be thwarted, where people will be abused, where, where it will appear that things have come off the rails. You see that in 7 and in 8. That Antiochus Epiphanes desecrates the temple, but God gave that to him, right? And it was just for a season. The comfort for us is in knowing that God is in control, that he knows everything, and that he will be victorious. We can trust what he has said. Future promises will also come to pass. I love the fact that we can look at Daniel chapter 8 and go, oh, Daniel didn't know what this was and it freaked him out. But we can look and we know exactly what it was and we can compare what God said would happen to what did happen and there are no gaps. That gives us confidence and faith in what he has said about our futures as well. So there's comfort for us in that. I think it's comforting to me to know there is a clock even if I can't see God's wristwatch, right? Um, one of the things that's sometimes frustrating if you're a soccer fan, uh, which you may or may not be, but the, the, there's not a clock on the wall like there is in a football game or a baseball. Well, they don't have a clock at baseball either. But, but in a soccer game, the only timepiece is the one that's on the referee's watch. I don't know if you know that. That's the only timepiece. And that can sometimes be frustrating because you if your team's winning, you want the game to be over, right? You want him to blow the whistle and call it. But you don't know. It's on his watch. The only watch in the universe is on God's wrist. But if he's good and has all the power, there is comfort for us in there. I love the fact that even when the angelic beings in Daniel chapter 8 say, how long will this go on? I can feel not only my own voice echoed in that, that there are times in my life, you might even be feeling that today, right? In the world we live in today, you might be saying, how long, O Lord, right? It's kind of nice to know that not only do we feel that sometimes, but even the angels in heaven look at what's happening on earth and go, let's be done with this. This is hard. This is hard to watch, right? Hard to live. God has a clock, and it's a good clock. We have to trust him in that. I read one author, and I don't have the quote here, I'll have to find it, but one author said he's comforted by the fact that the shepherd sees the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the beast, and does not flee. So using that shepherd imagery, I like that with the angels we see in seven. There's no reason for God to fear here. But we want to be reminded as well, as we look at a text like these two, God is saying to us, when we take in the big picture, right? We step back. Don't try and slice and dice it. Take a step back and let the surround sound overwhelm you, right? And what we feel when we let the surround sound overwhelm us is that human institutions, all human institutions, 
are temporary, unstable, fragmented, and depraved. It can be easy sometimes to put our faith in human institutions, but they won't last, right? They won't last. The kingdom of God is what is eternal. And it is a kindness of God to reveal what is to come. I love, and I'll finish with this, in John chapter 16, after Jesus has told, uh, has told his disciples some of the things that lie ahead for them, he says this in John 16, 1 through 4. He says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. What Jesus is saying in John 16 is, I'm, I'm blessing you with a glimpse into the future, even though that glimpse into the future may be complicated and hard. It's a blessing because when the difficulty comes, you'll remember, I saw it first and I'm with you in it now, right? You would think that Jesus would say, I'm not going to tell you any of the future stuff because I think if you knew what was coming, that they're going to put you out of the synagogue and they're going to flog you and they're going to drag you in front of their magistrates. I'm not telling you any of that stuff because I'm afraid if I told you what was going to happen in the future, you'd run off. Jesus isn't worried about that at all. What Jesus says instead is the exact opposite. I'm telling you what's happening in the future so that you'll have your confidence in me no matter what comes. That when it occurs, you'll remember, I, you heard it here first, Right? That's what we see as the pictures in Daniel 7 and 8. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would comfort us in knowing that what you say will come to pass. That you would comfort us in a recognition that every human institution will fall, but that you will reign supreme. And that not only will your dominion and your kingdom be an eternal dominion and a kingdom, but your people will reign with you. That we will serve you and serve alongside you for eternity. And that nothing can thwart that. That your promises will be fulfilled. And that you have the power, you have the knowledge, you're good and you're with us always. We take comfort in that today. We thank you for this literature, for this apocalyptic vision and the difference that it makes in our life and the way we live in the chaotic world in which we find ourselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.